A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There are certain ways that I experience the world because of my identity as a black man. And there are ways that I experience marginalization and societal oppression because of those things. So I have a unique knowledge of those systems through my lived experience that I can marry with my education and my learning and those relationships that I've developed to be able to teach about anti-racism and anti-blackness and issues that impact my community. However, I need to also be aware of my identities of privilege. You know, I talk about I'm cisgender and heterosexual, and I am educated, I'm an English speaker, all these different things that actually grant me privilege and prestige in society. And they shouldn't, but they do. And so what does it look like for me to not only speak on behalf of my sort of in-group as a Black person, where I can speak about my lived experiences of oppression, but how can I also use sort of that unfair, unearned privilege and prestige that people grant me just because I'm a man and have all these other things to point the spotlight to people of other marginalized and oppressed groups as well. How you did, how you did. That was the voice of Tony Neighbors. Now, Tony has become a good friend of mine. I met him through social media as I meet a lot of my friends these days, but he's got amazing insights on what it means to really be an anti-racist what it means to create an inclusive world. And his journey towards getting that is one that I feel like many of you relate to. Even if you don't relate to it, it's one that you can understand and look at the world through. Because if you understand and look at the world through other people's lived experiences, you have insight into an empathy that the world currently lacks. My hope is that once you listen to his story, listen to his ideas, you also go check out his website. He's got amazing courses that he's put out on this as well. I always love bringing on colleagues and brothers in this. So here's to creating a safer world for more people to be themselves. Enjoy the episode. Welcome everyone to another episode of As Told by Nomads. And today I have an amazing king with me here. His name is Tony Neighbors. Now, Tony has had over 18 years of experience in anti-racism training, consulting, strategy development, public speaking, team leadership, program management. And he also has a strong software and technology expertise. So if you've watched any of his videos, you can see some of that show in just how he uses and creates content. And one of the reasons I wanted to have him on is because over the last few months, I've been studying his work. Yes, studying. And I love how he uses his observation skills about our world and turns that into educational opportunities. Today, we're going to be talking about the importance of centering anti-racism. So welcome to the show, Tony. Thank you. I appreciate it, Ty. I'm definitely glad to be here. The pleasure is mine. Now, for those that don't know you, what was it like growing up the way you did? Because hearing you talk, you can always hear how you figured out how to unlearn the toxic elements of your childhood 
and your worldview and how you turn out to learning opportunities. So how did you grow up? How did you see the world when you were younger? I feel like in a lot of ways, I had somewhat of an unusual upbringing in terms of some of the locations that I grew up in. I grew up in a, a city called Tacoma in the state of Washington. Washington state is definitely not particularly known for its ethnic and racial diversity, but the city of Tacoma definitely is a center of diversity. And so really my entire life from my childhood on up, I was surrounded by a lot of different people from a lot of different backgrounds. I had a kind of a weird combination of being in these schools in the city, being an athlete, and then also being in advanced courses. My time in the city, my time in athletics definitely had a lot more diversity, a lot more Black people, Asian people, Latino people, Samoan people in basketball and football and that kind of thing. Whereas my uh, academic courses were definitely very white, especially as I got further in my high school journey. So it's a very interesting kind of strange whiplash of cultures, but then a really educational space of cultures. And so I definitely learned a lot about what it is to be Black in all those different spaces. But then also as a kid, I learned some really harmful lessons. <laughs> and I think especially, you know, as a kid, you're always trying to just belong and fit in and figure out what that looks like. And so it's kind of a weird combination of speaking in a certain way that would sometimes make other people of color or Black people feel uncomfortable by some of my word choices, but then just existing in spaces where I'm the only Black person, definitely making white people and white peers feel a little uncomfortable in that space. So I learned to chameleon myself in a lot of different ways as a kid to my own detriment because I wanted to like fit in as a kid, even though I was doing all this really cool, great stuff. So when I got to college, that's where my unlearning journey began because I was able to start taking ethnic studies courses. I was able to start learning some of the history of racism. And I started to be able to, for the first time ever in college, I was able to actually see myself in history. Whereas K through 12, I can memorize things, you know, I can learn the material, I can ace the test, and then immediately I forget all the content, especially in history, because in K through 12, it never felt applicable to me. But then in college, I'm seeing myself in the racial history of the United States. I'm seeing ways that I have been programmed to view myself in specific harmful ways. And I'm programmed to see Blackness in very specific harmful ways, even my own Blackness. And so I was able to basically have that light shown on those elements, which then began this brand new journey of, oh, I can actually be fully myself in all the ways in which that manifests. And that's Black enough. And that's beautiful. And that's powerful. And that has purpose in this world and in this society. That really kind of... Uh, springboarded my journey as an anti-racist educator and trainer and strategist and all, all those different things you named earlier. I love this so much. And this is why I wanted to start that with you. One of the first times you and I interacted on TikTok was when you were talking about code switching, because I related to that. And you talked about your experience and it was, I think I stitched or you stitched my video and I, one of us, both of us stitched something. <laughs> and it was an interesting experience because that idea of code switching is one thing that we don't talk about enough. So you brought up code switching, you brought up access, you brought up even stereotypical parents, you were one of those people like me, people watching on YouTube who see I have sports memorabilia here. So I, basketball is my favorite sport. And I grew up an athlete as well. Expected, right? Yeah, of course, a lot of Black people play football, basketball, yes. And then you're in, in all these classes, quote unquote, smart classes that people say, you're the only Black person. And so I'm sure some people are having confirmation by saying, of course, I don't expect to see another Black person. Wait, why are you here? <laughs> and so you then go to college and you're like, 
I'm sure you start to see, yeah, of course, black people have multiple experiences. We have existed in history. This was not taught in our school in all these areas. But people wouldn't associate that with the fact that you said you grew up in a place that wasn't as ethnically diverse. And then you don't have all these access to people where we're telling people that they can be whatever they want to be, not what they're supposed to be. So interesting elements. Yeah, it's interesting because um, actually, I mean, my high school was really diverse. My high school was, I believe, officially the most diverse high school in the state of Washington when I was a student there. I don't know if it still is now. Oh, so, so then why did that equation exist then, if you think about it? It's interesting because even very diverse places can be breeding grounds for anti-Blackness as well. You know, a lot of the sort of stereotypical ways that we receive messages about how we should be and how we should act and speak and all those kinds of things as Black people, a lot of those are rooted in harmful or negative images about Blackness. But then even for me to touch code switching, like that's been such a mind trip to kind of work through that and to undo that and to become a lot more intentional and strategic rather than autopilot and survival. That's definitely a conversation to have. But even, you know, in school, like I'm I'm academically successful, I'm in the advanced courses, et cetera. And I remember an administrator specifically telling me like, oh man, Tony, you're doing so good. You know, unlike the other black kids here, like you're really doing it and the way you act and behave and speak and blah, blah. I received that as like this great compliments not even realizing as a high school kid that that is super anti-Black. You know, this idea that you need to be, uh, you know, the trope of the respectable Negro. You need to be respectable and speak a certain way, which is rooted in making white people comfortable at the detriment of just even my own self-expression and my own true real identity and all the variances and the nuances that that is expressed. So yes, even interesting, even in those spaces, those lessons are still learned by us that we have to unwrap. And that's anti-Blackness and white supremacy, right? We talk about this and a lot of people, you know, you and I are in similar fields. A lot of people, when they hear white supremacy, they think someone in the hood or KKK, but it can be practiced amongst every ethnicity. But it's also this idea of centering whiteness as the standard, essentially, when sure you think you being smart is an exceptional thing. And the interesting thing would be based on our lived experiences, we grew up in different places where as we started to learn about the world, you started to see more Black people doing this. Now, I'm from Nigeria, so I had the opposite. Everyone around me was Black initially. And then I moved to international schools, and then I'm the only Black person. And then that was when I first got an idea of, oh, this is a surprise. This is supposed to be something that they don't normally see. And then I came to America, and so I have those lived experiences. I could understand that. But it's so fascinating when you first have that lived experience of understanding this is normal, and then you realize it's not normal for a group of people because they've only seen you one way without range. Yeah. And you know what? I have to point out a specific experience that I had in college that was kind of a game changer for me. I want to say it was my sophomore year in college. So when I was in college, I was super religious in that season of my life. I was very involved in a Christian organization. And there was a conference that they put on that was specifically for Black students. And it was in Atlanta and it was super dope. And the MC of that event and against the Black conference, you know, all the people are Black, all the leaders, et cetera, are Black. The MC of this event was like one of the kind of cheesiest, corniest, kind of like Carlton Banks meets Steve Urkel, like the way he talks and communicates, like super, super corny dude. And he was sort of like the exact image of people that would have been made fun of all day long in my high school. But he was the MC and he was so 
comfortable in his skin, in his communication, in his really cheesy jokes, and all the things that Black kids would have been made fun of in high school if you talked like that. And for me, it blew my mind open, where it's like, whoa, this dude is unapologetically Black. He is leading Black college students, and he talks like that, and that's who he is, and he's comfortable in his skin. And it's not an act that he's putting on for his survival, or it's not an act that he's putting on for a performance. Just that was a variation of Black confidence that I had never seen before. That was something that was so, I guess, sort of releasing for me, where it's like, oh my gosh, I can be all the pieces of what my Blackness looks like, and I can be confident in that, and I cannot feel like I need to perform for anybody. You know, there might be times where I might choose to express things a certain way to be strategic or to be effective in different areas or whatever the case is, but I am still Black, <laughs> whatever that looks like. We know one of my biggest pet peeves is when someone says they're going to take your black card away. And I'm like, you can't take someone's blackness. <laughs> it's just, it doesn't fit in any of that. <laughs> exactly. I love that experience so much because you're speaking of changing points here. Now, you obviously decided to make this a career. At what point did you decide after college to say, this is what I'm going to do? I've had such a, a kind of a weird winding career trajectory. But in hindsight, all those experiences were needed that give me the, the skill set that I have right now. So as I mentioned, I was really religious in it in high school, and I was drawn to the specific student organization I was a part of because they specifically had this emphasis on racial justice, which I'd never really seen that combination before. And so I had worked with them for a few years after college. I learned so much about, I would do speaking, I would do small group facilitation, I would do mentorship, like all these skills that are super transferable. After that, I got into sales which I never thought I would be in the sales and I hated it. <laughs> I did sales for about four years. For many reasons, things didn't work out with the other organization and I needed to actually have money to live and pay for my family, which that, anyway. But then I learned what does it look like to actually share about a thing that you have to offer, hear deeply the person who you're speaking to, and then be able to communicate with them about how you can help them with their issue. And that's what you do as a business professional. I got into university admissions after that. And what drew me to the university admissions job that I got into was that the role was specifically for multicultural outreach. So I was able to more expressly, at least in terms of my vocation, activate those skills and that knowledge and that expertise that I had with recruiting students of color in urban city centers in my location. That's when I first got into training. I was able to do training for my team and teaching them, hey, here are specific ways that you need to better understand your Black, Indigenous, and people of color students, better ways to serve them, better ways to understand what their contexts are, their backgrounds are, and what some of the obstacles are for them entering into college and being able to afford things, and et cetera, et cetera. So that, that happened sort of there. But even in my sales gigs, even when I wasn't officially doing racial equity as a job, I was still engaging with people. I was still teaching people. I was still active on social media. I was still sharing thoughts and having conversations with people and trying to still be a resource for people. But then fast forward a little bit, I'm having a lot of very frustrating online conversations where I'm talking about things. I'm sharing from my knowledge, my education, my background, my lived experience, having a lot of frustrating conversations, especially with white folks that are really fighting me on the reality of racism. Even in the midst of all of these news stories of unarmed Black people being killed by the police and by random people on the street with no justice, 
And then I was inspired by this acquaintance that I had who in that time, she had just started her own business having to do with racial justice and equity, a whole different thing that she was doing. But she was very vocal in terms of, hey, Black people, your lived experience, your brilliance, your wisdom is worthy of compensation. And so do not be afraid to speak out for being compensated for your emotional labor and your brilliance. And that so deeply struck a chord and resonated with me because I'd had so many just frustrating experiences with people who clearly did not value my expertise, did not value my perspectives, in spite of the fact that not only do I have this lived experience and there's a certain level of brilliance that we all have just as our lived experiences as Black, Indigenous, people of color, but also so much study and so much learning and so much listening deeply to the kind of intersectional approaches to this work and all the sorts of different things. So I started a business. So, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start my business. I'm going to get organized. I'm going to start creating things. I'm going to specifically work with organizations who are trying to figure this stuff out for real. Not just checkboxing, not just we did our annual training, not that we just have this nice statement on the website, but we are really trying to transform the actual DNA of our organization for racial equity. So that way our services rendered are racially equitable in their outcomes. So that way our staff are served in racially equitable ways. That translates through leadership, that translates through salaries and through promotions. And to be effective and impactful, again, it drives me up the wall. I never want to just go through motions, but how do we actually figure out things that have proven to work and be effective so we can make these transformations? And so started that business in 2018. I was doing that part-time for a few years. A little bit after that, got a job as the director of diversity, equity, inclusion for the Everett Housing Authority in Washington. And that was amazing on multiple levels. I didn't realize this when I was hired for the job, but I'm the first person in the U.S. to be a director of DEI for a public housing authority. Wow. Starting in kind of small town Washington State. Yeah, that's you. Uh, Which is wild to me because there's so much very important history between affordable housing and institutional racism. So it's a little wild to me that that position hasn't existed as a director title before, but we're doing some new things up here. Things are going well there. Things are going well business. And then things were going so much better with business after a while that I was able to do that full time. And so I've been doing my business full time for about the last 10 months. Things are going pretty well. And I'm still working with organizations, businesses, nonprofits, for-profits, city governments, international because my approach is really to bring in these frameworks that people can actually translate to their organization. I can't be an expert on everything that everybody does, but I can give you a framework that I know will work so you can actually make these transformations to unravel these oppressive systems. 100%. And speaking of the last 10 months, you know, things have been going well. One of the things in the last 10 months is you've amassed almost, what, 200,000 followers on TikTok doing a lot of what you're doing here. I'm curious, you're into digital media. Do you see a trend of this happening now where this is a way to be a teacher or an advocator or speaker or consultant? Is there a path for, to your point, your conversation and just really just teaching people about dismantling of oppressions with social media? Yeah, Tyle, man, I am so passionate about that question. I want to have a lot more conversations about that with other people who are either currently content creators or looking to be content creators. Short story, absolutely yes. Yes. <laughs> so definitely, absolutely yes. At the very least, as a starting point, it's very, very difficult, if not probably impossible, to do the full work in these kind of one to three minute chunks 
little videos and comment sections online and, you know, maybe even a good live will still only get you so far in and of itself. But for people who are actually looking to be teachers and educators and that kind of thing, I think that's actually a phenomenal place to get started and to actually develop at least a little bit of a portfolio so people can hear how you talk. They can hear how you think about this stuff. They can hear how you respond to others. They can know who you are a little bit. I never, never expected to have the sort of growth on TikTok that I've had in such a short period of time. I started this account at the end of November. And then by mid-January, I was at 100K. And I never expected to have that sort of quick growth. My whole thought was I want to develop more resources for businesses and organizations, but then also started to shift into some things for individual people that are looking to grow on this journey and grow and develop themselves. I'm like, ah, social media can be a good place to do that work and to build an audience and that kind of thing. But yeah, it's just really kind of blown up in ways that I didn't really expect. I am fortunate because of my background in sales. And so there's certain skills that I have for communicating what I have to offer people, as well as certain skills in terms of being very confident in pricing, being very confident in my value and my worth. Um, And then also learning certain things about how much stuff is worth in terms of money and dollars and cents. My approach to that, I feel like I've got a couple steps up from a lot of people who are just purely diving into content creation, but don't have some of those business experiences in their background. Because I see a lot of organizations taking Black, Indigenous, and people of color. And I've seen especially Black people taking advantage of us through social media. Really? Oh, yeah. I've seen other people in my kind of mutual contacts list. And I myself have had a couple of organizations reach out to me with some very... uh interesting offers to promote their stuff. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, that has happened. And I'm always looking at in what world? <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so, you know, I'll shout from the rooftops, you know, hey, content creators, free product is not paint. So <laughs> organizations typically can write off free products and it's basically, it's not costing them anything at all. But if you've got a big old platform and tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or more people see that video, you're shouting out this company, and they potentially make tens of thousands plus off of your post, and you make nothing. That math ain't math. <laughs> it's not math at all. By the way, speaking of anti-Blackness, this goes back to that to me in a big way because a lot of Black folks aren't taught to value themselves that way. Yes. And I'm sure you have a whole lot, a lot of rent. I just wanted to set it up because I have thoughts in it too, but that goes to what you're saying. And you know, as someone in the field, I used to do the same thing. In fact, it was a survival mechanism, right? Because I'm here, like worrying about visas and all these things. I'm like, you know, any, any job, you know, I'll come down in price, you know, whatever. And I was like, yo, they have a leverage on me. They know I need this. And I'm acting like I need them more than. <laughs> exactly. Oh my gosh. Oh, I kind of put my, you know, I kind of face palm myself for this, but then I can recognize the value and recognize the lessons. But when I first launched my business, I had such an amazing, powerful opportunity where one of my friends who I've actually partnered with to do some trainings and whatnot in the past, she was accepted to, I will just say, a highly prestigious law school. I'm going to keep it anonymous and whatnot. <laughs> okay. Um, right. A highly prestigious law school. And she invited me to actually come and lead a workshop for one of the students' groups that she was involved in. Again, this is a very prestigious school and actually some prestigious student groups that were involved with that as well. This was all the way on the other side of the country. And again, I don't know anything about how much did this stuff cost. And so 
I am embarrassed to say this. My rate that I put for this workshop was, it gets worse. So my rate that I put was $1,000 for this workshop. And then they pay. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style for my flight and my hotel. I didn't even charge them for food. I didn't even charge them for me getting to the airport and whatnot. I paid for all that myself. And here's what I did. I was so out of touch with the value of this workshop and the stuff I was bringing in that I proactively mega discounted it. I charged them $300 for this workshop that I had to travel across the country for, stay two nights for. I could do no other work during that time. It was like, yo, Tony, you did not know what you were doing back then. No. Uh, Tony, I'll do you one better. I got invited to a prestigious place in the Northeast. We'll say it is probably going to be the same school. They asked me to do a panel on Afrocentric and all these things. And they said they weren't paying because they required, this is the university. You know, we're doing you a favor. So I said, you know what? I will go up there. I didn't have any money back then. So I took a bus. Oh, wow. (laughs) I took a bus. And because I didn't have enough money for a hotel, I just took a bus there. And then by midnight, I came back to New York. Oh, my gosh. I know. It was all about, it took me about seven hours to get there, then seven hours to get there, get back. And in my head, I thought, you know, yeah, 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 I did something. And then two days after, I just had this deflation because I was going through a pattern of that. And this was when I switched. But it was a series of that where I realized like, yeah, I mean, these things are great to put on social media. I got invited. I spoke here. I'm putting this there. But then I'm realizing that I'm not even valuing myself. They've moved on to the next speaking engagement. You can think back. And I think, sure, there's value to be able to put prestigious organizations on your resume. Like that has value. But then also, too, right? <laughs> Money also has value. That's the difference with, uh, you know, if you think about American capitalism, it's an interesting thing <laughs> as to who it rewards versus who it doesn't and what it relies on you behaving like because of the behaviors that have been accepted and taught. You know, we even see this among ourselves in our communities where there'll be discounts. If you value yourself, like, nah, come on now. Come on, it's me, man, it's me. The homie hook up, the homie hook up. Exactly. And then, you know, you're like, you know, you start feeling almost guilty sometimes. Like, should I do that? But then you have to, I think it's almost a training where it's like, no, I should be valid this way. You should see me as valuable this way. And we should make this culture. Yeah, it's making me think of some of the videos from, I believe his username is Blackout. Oh yeah, no Blackout. Yeah, he's super dope. And he's put some stuff out before where he's talked about the most highly paid TikTokers. I saw that video. None of them are Black people. 
but several of them specifically have copied dance trends created by Black people. And now they're at the top of those lists. <laughs> I'm sure you started getting this too. So some brands will reach out to you and they'll ask for your rate. And I remember the first time I said no, and I felt good with that. Before I used to be so nervous and they, they won't come back. And I was like, yeah, it's fine. It's okay. But I said, no, it's this. I actually want to do that. And I was able to negotiate something. And some I just let go away. But those brands will send you an offer and not expect you to just renegotiate. And it will do that with a bunch of people. And it's a behavioral change. So it's interesting. So now we talk about the business of being an anti-racist creator. I want to talk about the concept of sustaining it in our systems. My biggest frustration, a lot of businesses will go on the trend of the murder of George Floyd or things like that. And then they'll do what they need to do because then it's sexy. But what happens right now, 2022, to keep it sustainable? Are you still doing that? What do you feel like is the biggest issue with our systems, education, healthcare, government, schools, companies, when it comes to anti-racism and making that part of the culture? What is the biggest issue? I could definitely say a lot about that. There are so many ways that we basically are on kind of like the media leash. They put the leash on us and they pull us and they direct us and they guide us and they tell us when it's time to go out and use the bathroom. Like that's how it goes down. Because these things, like you talk about George Floyd's murder, that incident happens probably daily in the United States. Stuff like that, even the very specific details, that stuff is happening often, often, often. And I even, because of the content that I make and the work that I do and the stuff that I pay attention to, like I see on a regular basis, current events of police brutality happening to unarmed Black people, again, almost on the daily But what happens is for some strange reason, we have really short attention spans and we rely so deeply on the media to tell us what we need to care about. The media tells us, hey, this awful thing has happened. You need to be up in arms around it. And then people get up in arms around it and then they forget about it after a couple of weeks. And then we move on to the next thing. Nobody is even talking about some of the the grocery store shooting. That was just few weeks ago. Buffalo shooting, yeah. Nobody's talking about that anymore. All these things, you know, people are barely talking about even the school shooting that happened. That's almost silent now. And that was not that long ago. Do you realize what you just said? I want people to understand this. He says the grocery store shooting, I say Buffalo. He says the school shooting happened, I say Uvita. The fact that I can even just process, that is so problematic in my head that it's all, yeah, this is the... Like, I don't even have to be that specific, but you know the news item I'm talking about because that's how these news cycles work for us. So regular. Exactly. (laughs) And then we forget and then we get distracted. And I think that is why, actually, this is, I'm now remembering even some of my own earlier analysis, but this is why, in my opinion, George Floyd carried such heavy weights. It's because there was this unique combination of this hitting the news, but then also COVID is keeping everybody indoors and we can't do our regular things that we do to distract ourselves. People aren't going out and doing all these entertaining things. Sports are not happening like they used to because COVID. So people are just stuck in a house listening and paying attention. So then that actually sparks some new stuff. But now things are opening back up again. And now we're back into our normal distractibility timeframes, our normal distractibility habits and routines and rhythms and that kind of thing. That's part of the passion of my work. Like I will not work with a client when if it becomes clear that they're just trying to check off a box or if they're just trying to be comfortable. I had a client that we had to have a little bit of 
discussion. I wouldn't say I got too heavy because I feel like my communication skills are developed enough to navigate through some of that. But they were wanting to bring me in to talk about identity. They were doing a whole event on identity. So I met with a small group of people from one of their committees to talk about some of that stuff. And a couple of people were like, you know, I was talking about, oh, identity. Ooh, we should make sure that we're talking about how does privilege fit into that? How does like oppression fit into that? And how can you make sure your organization is being proactive at navigating that stuff? And then a couple of people in the room were like, we're tired of talking about that heavy stuff. We should be talking about things that we have in common, like things that are really exciting and bring us together. And I'll leave it up to your very correct guess about the racial background of these individuals that said this. I'm very precise with my language. And so my very precise pushback was, I hear what you're saying, but you need to be really careful with how you would express that. We need to be very careful as white people talking about being tired of talking about racism, because that tiredness you feel talking about this thing does not compare to the tiredness that Black, Indigenous, and people of color feel experiencing it. So you need to be really, really careful about how you express and engage these conversations. We basically were eventually able to flip back to this shared understanding that, yeah, we actually need to talk about this stuff. I mean, I was prepared. Like I was prepared that, ooh, if this is what they want me to do, I am not interested. I was prepared to walk away from the opportunity, but I'm glad we were able to re-navigate it where I needed to go to. And then, you know, we ended up having a really good session about it afterwards. I agree with you. That combination of what was happening in COVID news and everybody at home, no sports, you know, it, it allowed people to see things maybe for the first time for some or just really sit with their complicity in that. And the interesting thing that happens when we get back to quote unquote normal is that normal is people forget about, you know, black <laughs> indigenous people of color and women and people and members of the LGBTQIA plus community. And that idea, we've created a culture of normalizing white supremacy, which is affecting every single standard and norm that we have. And so when you push back like that, which I'm so glad you did, you really get people to get back to like, no, we can't regress to the mean here. Because the mean is about making sure that only a certain group of people are affected. We need to challenge ourselves daily until that becomes culture. And I think that part is the thing that people miss out on. They think, I've done it for two years. I can't sit with this heaviness. And I always tell them, that's your privilege there. The fact that you can check in and out. Come on, everyone else is still dealing with this. You just talked about your code switching at the beginning. You had to understand every freaking law throughout your childhood. I want to shout out my friend and colleague. We do a lot of partnering together on various racial equity things. Like people talk about, you know, oh, you've got to have this racial equity lens when you're doing this work. And I'm going to get really cheesy with my prop here and quote my friend Bernardo, where he talks about like, you know, racial equity lens. Like, I don't like that language because, you know, look, I got my blue light glasses. Like I can put this thing on. I can take it off anytime I want to. Like, oh, this is hurting my face. I'm going to take it off. And he talks about like, we need to develop a racial equity lace which I love that terminology and shout out to Bernardo Ruiz with that language. Shout out Bernard. Yeah. Because, you know, what does it look like to have a permanent change to your view and your perspective and your ways of navigating the world and your ways of viewing things that are happening with people? Or it's not just something you put on and take off whenever you feel like it or you get tired or you just feel uncomfortable. And that's the thing too, with a lot of people who are trying to do ally work and advocacy work, a lot of white people that are trying to do this work, or at least speaking about wanting to do this work, a lot of the time, their own sort of inner examination work hasn't been developed enough for them to realize the ways in which that even their advocacy work, even their good deed work 
is still often centering themselves and how people view them and their own reputation and people giving them kudos and backpats for being good allies. Where I was today, I was reading an awesome, awesome post from a person on LinkedIn named Lily Jung, who is a trans Asian American person who does a lot of work about those intersections of their Asian identity, their trans identity, all those different things that come together. One of the things that they were talking about today with the post on LinkedIn was we need to change the language around allyship. It's not that people shouldn't be asking, how can I be a good ally? Or, you know, what does allyship for the LGBTQ or the, you know, whatever community look like? And they said, you know, the language should be more like, how can I partner with the LGBTQ, you know, whatever, the oppressed community, the Black, Indigenous, people of color community, the disabled community. How can I partner alongside that community to achieve equitable outcomes? And that's like a game changer in terms of that language. I love that language because then we're focused on a specific set of outcomes rather than this sort of ambiguous, floaty notion of having a title of being an ally, which is really meaningless in terms of actual movements and fights for liberation and equity. There's so much performance, so much performative allyship that happens when that's the focus. The reason I love your pushback on that identity conversation is very similar to the LinkedIn post you just brought up. A lot of us forget to realize that identity is every part of who you are happening at the same time. It's not just one part. So me, I could simultaneously have a marginalized and privileged identity. So I'm able-bodied, I'm straight, I'm a man, but I'm black, Nigerian, and all these things. And I experience all these things at different times, but that doesn't mean that I can't participate in patriarchy. It doesn't mean I can't participate in homophobia or transphobia. And it doesn't mean I don't experience racism or xenophobia. And if people, for some reason, it's like this cognitive dissonance that they feel like, oh, we just got to talk. We just finished got talking about this. But now we got to talk about this one. What I give was well, always something with you for this on my play. I don't know if you get on TikTok. There's always something with this guy, always dividing people, bringing up this, this, this. Just be happy. And I'm like, like, you always race divided. And I'm how am I? <laughs> you know, I get that often on my platform. And it's always comical for me because I have the lived experience. And then I, you know, you step out, you see this person has probably never even had to deal with just understanding the nuance <laughs> of identity. That's one of the primary ways that systems of oppression live. So there's a, oh, I don't remember the specific person this idea came from. So forgive me for not quoting the specific person properly, but there's someone who kind of turns the notion of privilege on its head a little bit, where this person talks about, you know, yes, we can talk about things like white privilege, but then this person talks about, we need to also talk about this idea of white immunity, which I love that language. So privilege, people can freak out about the language of privilege because, oh, I'm poor. I've had hard things, which, you know, of course, is not the real meaning of that. But people have that pushback and then it kind of muddies the conversation. But this idea of immunity, meaning that there are certain obstacles and pain points and oppressions that you will not experience because of your racial identity. You might experience hard things in these different ways, but they will not be because of your racial identity, which you cannot change. You have no control over your racial identity in that way. And that's the thing, too, is when you are immune to a certain experience, you're not experiencing it yourself. It's really easy to become blind to the existence of it. And that's one of those white supremacy attributes is I don't see this thing. It doesn't happen to me. So therefore, it doesn't exist. And I will not hear anything that speaks otherwise to that. And this is something that 
of course, comes up blatantly with, you know, commenters, like you mentioned, where people are just mad and just immediately just will be very clear about that. But sometimes that comes up really subtly for people, too, where they might even mean well, they're trying to learn and advocate, but then something kind of hits them just the wrong way. And then that stuff sort of explodes within them when they're not doing that level of work to listen deeply and to believe people even when you haven't seen it for yourself, even if you haven't experienced it for yourself, to just trust that people understand their own lived experiences and basically have that belief <laughs> when you're listening to marginalized people. Learn, unlearn, relearn is something we should all do. You brought being raised in church. I also grew up in Christian environments. As I've grown up, you know, I've developed my own relationship with God. But one of the things that I've had to really unlearn is the toxic elements of it. Honestly, we don't talk about it enough in our communities. There are a lot of Black people that grew up either Christian or Muslim. And this, this is the other thing that is going against that, right? It will be the homophobia, all right? It will be the idea of what professionalism is or pushing back against this. And I feel like there's that too. The idea of unlearning what you've been told as gospel, pun intended, is <laughs> I think it's the trickiest part there, you know, for a lot of people to have these internalized ideas of actually harmful behavior. That's facts. Well, I mean, it's, it's a combination, you know, it can be a combination of things that, you know, might be particular to, I'd say that culturally I've been in a lot of different kind of cultures of church, but there, you know, there can be some unique things to, you know, Black church, particularly with some of those lessons about, you know, Blackness and identity that we learn. But then there can be even just some really bigger picture evangelical values that just hit different for marginalized people. This idea of you got to be humble. you got to be humble. you got to, you know, less of you, less of you, less of you. That just hits different when you're already in a societally marginalized group. You know, this idea of what well, total depravity, like we are all crap, we're garbage, we're sin, we're all these things, we're nothing without God. Like telling an oppressed or marginalized person that you theologically need to believe that you are nothing just hits different when you're in a society like We hear it all the time. Exactly. It just lands differently when so much of society is already kind of beating you down with that kind of message, too. It's like, oh, that's how God feels. Like, there's so many of these things that I love how you put those three words together. You know, the what you say? Learn, unlearn and relearn. I tell everyone to do this. This is something I've turned because I, this is what I'm learning. Look, you know, I'm learning about my ableism. You know, I'm learning that. I'm learning how I use that in my language. I'm learning things that I grew up with and I have to make sure I'm not participating in the patriarchy or, or anything, any of the phobias, because in many times, you know, I'm sure you were taught the same thing. It's a sin to do this. It's that to do that. And you just have to come to terms with, I don't agree. <laughs> you basically have to just say, you know what? I love you. I know you're, you, we grew up the same way, but I can't agree. I'm sorry. It was just something I wanted to bring up because I've noticed that as a barrier, if you will. Now, something else you do though, you, you talked about this creating platforms. We're getting ready to close here. So I want to give you an opportunity to talk about your courses. If your courses are anything like you talked about, and I'm sure that they are, I want people to participate in that in an online format. So how can people access? What are you teaching? What do you offer? Thank you. I appreciate that. So my website is www.racialequityinsights.com. And that's where you can learn about not only my offerings for businesses, which are again, workshops, trainings, strategic developments, executive coaching, all those different things that I can work with businesses and organizations and city governments. But yeah, as you said, I have just recently launched e-coursework, which people can take on demand in their own time. 
And I am a photographer as well. And I say sort of a budding videographer. And so I try to put a little bit more effort into the e-courses where it, it looks pretty good. I think it's engaging. I think it's information that will really make you think and grow. And the e-course that I want to let people know about right now is called the Anti-Racist Jump Starter Guide. And it's exactly for people who are in the space of, ah, I really, I genuinely really care about anti-racism and racial equity. And I've tried to learn some things, but I really don't fully know what I'm supposed to do. I don't know how I'm supposed to grow. I don't know how I'm supposed to maintain this and actually be helpful and impactful. And I don't want to censor myself. Like, how do I do this stuff? That's what the Jumpstarter Guide talks about. It talks about a holistic way to embody anti-racism. It cannot just be that, hey, I believe and agree with those ideas. It cannot just be that. And for so many people that call themselves anti-racist, that's all that it is, is I agree with those ideas. It's like you're rooting for, like, I'm a, you know, I see a Lakers jersey. I'm a Lakers fan. And that's how people treat anti-racism is I cheer for the team. But you got to get in the game. You got to get in the game. And so that's what that guy is about is how do you get into the game? And then how do you also do this becoming work internally with who you are as a person? So that can be transformed and then reflected in the actual physical work that you do with your body, your voice, your influence, and so on. And I will have other ones that I'm going to be launching as well. We'll talk more about that at another time. But please check out my e-courses, check out my stuff. And I, I would love to be able to help people out in that way. We'll put that in the show notes. And I'm so excited for that. This is going to be amazing. Thank you so much for that. The last question I have is what I ask my guests all the time to close. And my mission statement is use your difference to make a difference. So, Tony, how do you use your difference to make a difference? This is something that I very recently was thinking about and talking about. I think that it fits really nicely with this conversation about privilege and oppression we're already having because it requires me to understand my own lived experiences and where they fit in with greater society. So I am a Black man and there's certain ways that I experience the world because of my identity as a Black man. And there are ways that I experience marginalization and societal oppression because of those things. So I have a unique knowledge of those systems through my lived experience that I can marry with my education and my learning and those relationships that I've developed to be able to teach about anti-racism and anti-Blackness and issues that impact my community. However, I need to also be aware of my identities of privilege. You know, I talk about I'm cisgender and heterosexual, and I am educated. I'm an English speaker, all these different things that actually grant me privilege and prestige in society. And they shouldn't, but they do. And so what does it look like for me to not only speak up on behalf of my sort of in-group as a Black person, where I can speak about my lived experiences of oppression, but how can I also use sort of that unfair, unearned privilege and prestige that people grant me just because I'm a man and have all these other things to point the spotlight to people of other marginalized and oppressed groups as well. And I think that's one of the best ways that people can, as people talk about, oh, I want to use my privilege, which honestly, that language makes me a little uncomfortable because the privilege is rooted in systems of oppression. If you want to use your privilege, quote unquote, then I think that needs to be to pointing the spotlight at marginalized people, oppressed people, using the megaphone to shout out their words and telling people, hey, listen to these people. Hey, here are things that we need to do to better actively support oppressed people, even oppressed people that are of backgrounds and experiences that are not your own. And maybe even especially that because it activates a different sort of hearing to people that you're communicating that stuff to. I love it. 
Tony, this has been a real pleasure. I want to thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Tayo, uh, at Racial Equity Insights on my social medias. Follow me, folks. Check me out. And uh, yeah, let's definitely do this again sometime. We'll do it. I'm going to put every one of your social media no, uh, links on the show notes and then links to everything you mentioned, too. So this is fun. It's perfect. I appreciate you, brother. Anytime. Kings, queens, and royalty. Until next time, use your difference to make a difference. You've just been listening to the As Told by Nomads podcast. For more ways to reach out to Tayo and to use your difference to make a difference, head over to www.tayoroxon.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.